Hello, Paratopia. My name is Jeremy Vaney. You may recognize me from the message boards. And this is my listener show. But before we get to my listener show, um, I just want to make a correction. G Wiz on our message board informed me that Travis Walton did indeed release uh, his autobiographical account prior to the movie Fire in the Sky, back around the time that his abduction happened. Um, and that the m book that came out around the time of the movie was a was a revised edition, which actually makes it more interesting to me because uh, all of the stuff that he, he must have added means that he must have added a lot of stuff to this third edition. Um, because, like I said, it was a lot of answering critics, especially Phil Class. So I wonder, I wonder if this third incarnation of the book is even um, a completely different animal or added on to animal than, than that one. Perhaps I'll have to pick it up and find out. Anyway, this week's episode revolves around some things that clicked with me while I was watching the movie Inception, now in theaters. Um, and I won't give you any spoilers for Inception, except to say that I didn't think it was that great of a movie. However, there were some things that I resonated with. Uh, and just basically, this movie is a heist movie set in a dreamscape. Um, so there's a lot of explanation about how dreams work. And the basic gist of it goes something like this. When you consciously enter a dream, the characters around you are your unconscious mind. Uh, and so you don't really have any control over them. And when someone else enters your mind in the dream, those unconscious characters act as antibodies. They sort of feel as if there's an intruder, and then they look for the intruder, and they turn hostile, and they kill the intruder, and then the, the actual person wakes up. So that's if you were to invade my mind, say. Um, my unconscious characters would all of a sudden stop what they're doing. They would stop the, the program, as it were, and come after you if they had an inkling that you were not supposed to be there. Now, this resonated with me because I think I've talked about it on this show. I've definitely talked about it on other shows um, and written about it. That I have this recurring thing. When I wake up into my own dreams, when they become lucid and I'm conscious in them, and I let the any of the dream characters around me know that I'm awake, uh, they turn evil. <laughs> it's the same thing. So it's as if they're the antibodies to me in my own self. Isn't that weird? Well, let's get into what that means and then, and then the aftermath of all this after the movie was over. But first, one more little bit of preamble. Um, I'm going to talk about my own dreams here for a minute. However, I don't want this to be the signal that if listeners are going to continue to give us you know, listener-generated content, that we want to hear about your dreams, because we don't. <laughs> uh, that is to say that this serves a purpose of illustrating what exactly I'm talking about in the larger context. And so, if you're going to include dream material, it's got to serve a larger context. It can't just be, I had this weird dream, and that means something to me. Therefore, that'll mean something to you, the listener, because that's not what I'm doing here. Um, but we do get that sometimes from people who, who want to do a show, which is great. 
But you have to keep in mind that everyone's had dreams. They're always weird, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and now several people are going to sit there and cry and think that I've singled them out. But, no, there are several of you. <laughs> so don't cry. Don't cry into your milk. Anywho, one fine day, I had I woke up into a dream and... I asked the dream characters to tell me the truth. And usually I ask them about alien abductions. Was I abducted or is it all in my head? Am I lying to myself or did this really happen? But this time I decided not to ask that. I decided to ask, uh, are you an aspect of myself or are you your own independent being? Are you some sort of alien or demon or guardian of something unfathomable to me? And... It did its usual routine. The you know the dream character I had cornered and started interrogating did its usual thing of growing hostile and wanting to fight me and kill me and all this sort of stuff. Um, but I kept at it. I, I I fought off the onslaught of dream characters and finally cornered him and said, "Tell me the truth. Tell me the truth. And are you a part of me? Are you an aspect of me?" And he looked at me and he said. Yes. Told me I wa he was. And then he turned into an ally, very Castaneda-like. And in fact, by the end of the dream, there was a Castaneda-type scenario. So he becomes an ally, and he helps me fight off all the unconscious baddies coming at me, trying to kill me. And then eventually this sort of general <laughs> appears, and uh, he gets into a sword fight with the general, and the general kills him. Um, so the general didn't like the fact that I was awake... And so it was another level of unconscious mind coming at me to kill me. And so I left. I found a door out of there and I left. And then I walked into uh, this, like I said, a Castaneda type experience. Why would this happen? Why is this important? Well, what is it about the unconscious mind that doesn't want me there? That doesn't want me in my own head awake? Perhaps you've experienced this yourself, where you're an enemy in your own mind. Why is that? Why? Well, you'd be an enemy because if you think of your everyday conscious self as the shallow aspect uh, that is the sort of the puppet of the unconscious, which is the deeper aspect. Well, the puppet is looking up at the puppet master and going, uh, I'm self-aware right now, so what's going on? Tell me your deep, dark truths. One question is, is it qualified to ask that question and mean it? What do we know about the unconscious mind? Well, we can suppose some things, or not. I mean, some people believe that there's uh, buried past life memories and that sort of thing. Uh, I don't know, so I'm going to leave that aside. That's the gray basket. I don't know. Let's deal with what we do know. Well, we, we know that there are these collective symbols, right, that we all have, and that's in the unconscious. We know that we repress, and that's mostly what the personal unconscious is, right? So you've got the non-personal unconscious mind, which is the collective, and you've got the personal unconscious, which is you, repressing, and uh, repressing based on culture, based on uh, family upbringing, whatever it is. Um, so all the things that you don't want to be that's what you are, <laughs> right? Uh, in addition to the things that you do want to be, it's just it's this other 
monster of a thing that you've divorced yourself from. So you've created this unconscious conscious divide, right? And now the conscious part, the part that believes itself to be the only alive thing, the hero, wants the unconscious thing to tell it all its secrets. Kind of the same problem we have with supposed aliens, right? It's like, just because you can verbalize what you want doesn't mean that you're qualified to actually hear it appropriately. And as soon as someone says that, then they become elitist. And now wires get crossed and anger happens and all this sort of nonsense. Um, because nobody likes to be told no. Least of all, you in your own head. So, I think to be able to turn your unconscious into an ally requires a level of true openness, which is symbiotic with true understanding. That is, uh, how you say, hard to come by these days. Nevertheless, it's not enlightenment. It's not the breaking down the dam between the stream of unconscious and conscious because you still are allied to something there's still the thing it's really a a breakdown of third person perspective which is which is you talking in an obtuse or uh, analytical way about the conscious and unconscious mind dealing with it as an it to second person relationship with what was formerly it now it's an ally now it's a persona. It's a thing you get along with. That ain't first person, which is the I am. I am that flow. So we're not quite there yet, but let's deal with what we've got. And actually, let's take a little sidebar here just to deal with this in terms of hypnotism. Because we keep talking about hypnosis and, you know, the whole Jacobs thing and all that, but we don't we don't really say we don't get to the fine points of what's going on there. What is it that's happening. Why is there this struggle to say, you know, hypnosis is a good tool or a bad tool? Well, I think what we're seeing is the hypnotist bypassing the conscious mind to speak to the unconscious. Right? That's fair enough. So what did we just say the unconscious is? Well, it's memories, right? And that's what the hypnotist wants to get at. But it's also the feelings of deep guilt, deep shame, um, all the buried stuff, all the buried fears that we have. It's also the collective unconscious symbols. So when you access the unconscious mind to retrieve memories, you cannot parse out the memories from these other things. These are all cluttered around in the unconscious mind. You're throwing your fishing line into the unconscious sea, And you're hoping that you're going to catch a memory, but the memory might have some barnacles of these other things, or the memory might not come at all. It might just be these other things, which take the form of images called imagination, right? And if they have an emotion attached to them, well, my God, what feels more real? And there's another level here of what's wrong with hypnosis, which is... Exactly, you know, exemplified by the uh, the David Jacobs thing, which is the hypnotist who is conscious, the shallow conscious self, right, who is the puppet of his own unconscious mind, his own guilt, his own fear, his own anger issues, all of that stuff, is the person, you know, la-di-da, I'm trying to do the right thing, I'm trying to be a therapist. He's that person. That's the person who's connecting to 
you, your deep unconscious self. So, that person claims to want to get your memories to help you, and part of that claim might be true, but part of that claim is not true, because part of that claim is written by whatever unconscious motivation informs the hypnotist. That part is also true. Okay? This is the important thing to understand here. Because there's no fault in the logic of what I'm telling you. So, all of that is is going after your unconscious memory, which, at the very least, is going to be tainted by the other things of the unconscious. At the most, it's not even going to be a real memory that's retrieved. This is the problem. Or problem number one. One of many. Of course, the other problem, then, is that the hypnotist hears what he wants to hear, right? And so he forms a picture of what he thinks is going on, usually based on his own fears and and expectations and all of that. And then he throws that back at you and tries to apply it to you, whether it resonates with you or not. Now, it sounds like from what Travis Walton was saying, uh, he already had his memories and he was just using hypnosis to relax because he was so damn scared that he couldn't talk about them. And from what I hear, John Mack also did, what, light hypnosis um, as a means to relax people. So maybe there is a difference there. Maybe there is something that is a relaxation technique, no more or less different than teaching someone a breathing exercise or making them feel comfortable in some way. But then there's definitely this other thing, which is getting to your unconscious stuff and trying to access blocked memories, or perhaps memories that don't even exist, that that the person coming to the therapist believes exist, but were dreams, or, you know, hallucinations of some sort, whatever the variables. In either case, the hypnotist is still bringing something to the table, which is his or her perspective, his or her point of view, and all of the unconscious muck that goes with it. And when you're dealing with the unknown... That stuff need not apply. I don't know if there's a way around it. I don't know, you know, I mean, that would take a really objective person or someone just listening and not asking questions, not steering a conversation. Essentially a therapist, not a hypnotherapist. Uh, because again, as uh, Jeff has uh, pointed out time and again, and as I've pointed out and others, it's no secret that John Mack attracts one type of person with a story, Bud Hopkins attracts another, Jacobs attracts another, Leo Sprinkle attracts another, etc., etc., on down the line. Uh, So, whatever their techniques, they're certainly either attracting people who are attracted to their personas, and that gets tricky, you know, are you then going to co-create memories even in a relaxed state? Or conform your memories to the expectations of the, uh, the hypnotherapist. And this is where Bill Burns would say, you know, medical training comes in and um, psychological training comes in to know when that's happening. Did John Mack know if that was happening? I, I don't know. I mean, he had all the training, right? So he should. He was at Harvard. It's a pretty big school, yeah. But we don't know. There is no perfect way to do this. Uh, but it's time to eliminate... The really, really imperfect way, even if it is just as a relaxation technique. And then it's up to the experiencers who've gone to these people to figure out for themselves whether what came out of them was real or not. 
I mean, in the end, it is an individual process, is it not? There's no help, as Jeff would say. There's no help out there for us. Not really. And I also, just one last thing on this tangent. Uh, I think that whatever the expectations or the unconscious, whatever, whatever, of the therapist or pseudo-therapist is what is going to inform their questions and what is going to inform where they want to take you in your stream of consciousness. I started reading Bud Hopkins' autobiography, what is it, Art, Life, and UFOs, or something like that. And from a very early age, you know, he had sicknesses, he was afraid of doctors, uh, he was afraid of a lot of things. He was afraid of a lot. And some of them, it's hard not to say, well, gee, maybe he carried that over into his work. Why did he concentrate so much on the medical exams and the taking of the sperm and ovum and, and all of that? Why did other stuff become an outlier situation? Why did he concentrate on the fear? Why was fear real to him and anything else was, you know, imposed upon the person by aliens? I mean, that's all his stuff, isn't it? That's not That has nothing to do with the person coming to him, and yet the person coming to him has to absorb that because he's the authority figure and... He's there to help. And again, it's not, he's not consciously, maliciously doing this. It's what we all do, which is why we all should not be practicing hypnosis on people. And here's an interesting other tangent within a tangent. Uh, One of the really smart things Bud Hopkins wrote, which was in Sight Unseen, uh, was that the aliens bypass the conscious mind to speak to the unconscious using symbols. He doesn't say why that would be. I say why that would be. I've been saying it uh, since you've heard me, probably, so I don't need to repeat it. Um, But isn't this all interesting that the way we talk about aliens is pretty much the way that we are? In other words, hypnotists bypass the conscious mind to speak directly to the unconscious mind. Aliens bypass the conscious mind to speak directly to the unconscious mind. Aliens give us these cover scenarios that they implant in us, right? So that we don't really know what's going on. Hypnotists give us these (laughs) cover scenarios so that we don't really know what's going on. It's as if the ufological hypnotherapist has transferred onto the aliens what exactly they are doing. They're giving conscious intent to their own unconscious process. Perhaps. I mean, what's the other option that... These things are universal uh, in a way that really means universal and not just human. That certain things can only go a certain way when you're dealing with the unconscious mind, whether you're an alien, a human, a frog. I don't know. Perhaps it's time that I digress. So wait, wait, wait in this discussion. Ah, yes. I'm sitting in the theater. I'm watching Inception. I'm applying it to myself. And I'm seeing that I am an enemy to myself. That's why my unconscious doesn't like me. Except that I'm also uh, sort of an open-slash-understanding kind of person, and so if a guy like me presses hard enough, and perhaps a guy or gal like you, the shard you're speaking to becomes an ally because the unconscious truly understands that it needs to come to the surface, it needs to see the light of day. You need to be whole, not divided. Something in there. I don't know. What do I know? Sitting in the theater, thinking about all this stuff. 
thinking about sigil magic, thinking about chaos magic, I'm thinking about prayer, I'm thinking why do any of these things work? Let's take sigil magic. You're taking something that you have consciously thought of, you're turning it into a symbol, a nonsensical symbol, that only has meaning to you, and you're concentrating on that symbol. So it's like a feedback loop, isn't it? You're, you're sending your conscious want into your deep unconscious. You're speaking to yourself. You're not sending it out to the universe, at least not yet. <laughs> We're not there yet, are we? But you're definitely sending it to your unconscious self. You're reprogramming yourself to fit what your conscious intention is, what your want is. It's one thing to say, oh, I want something. Oh, I wish I had this, but unconsciously you don't believe you deserve it. Or unconsciously you don't really want it. It's another thing to rewire the puppet master, isn't it? The puppet can rewire the puppet master. And that's what that type of sigil magic is. Now, if you play the lottery, as I have uh, attempted to do, although I haven't actually played the lottery, I just made the sigil magic for I want to win a million dollars next time I play lottery, but I haven't played yet. Uh, is that going to work? Because that requires that you actually affect something outside of yourself with your desire. Is that possible? Well, it is. Uh, separation is an illusion. And underneath that is the ground of all being, or oneness, or whatever you want to call it. Oneness, let's stick with that, that's easy enough. If all the puppets are finger puppets on one hand, if you think of the finger puppet as your conscious self, and the finger as the unconscious self, and then the hand, well, the finger and the hand are one. The hand would be a stream, and the fingers would be pools within the stream, but they're essentially all water. So can you leave your pool and go into the greater expanse of water and influence another finger, another finger puppet? You can if you can subvert the personality, can't you? If there's a way to subvert that personality, you can influence its actions. And again, isn't that what a hypnotist does? It's just more of an external process. But I've certainly had the experience of having someone in my dream... Um, heal my back, right? You remember that? After the Colin uh, Andrews episode? I mean, that was very much something else. That wasn't me. And how do I know that? Because I've been dealing with this stuff for a really long time, and I can tell the difference now. Or, you know, if you want to say I'm delusional and blah, 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 blah well, fine. Um, I guess there's nothing I can say against that, except you only know what you know. Um... I also had a weird experience uh, that I wrote about in my book, I Know Why the Aliens Don't Land. It was a um, a dream-within-dream-within-dream experience that was, quote-unquote, alien-induced, where essentially I was going through all of this dream stuff, but in reality I was on a table and these, you know, supposed aliens wearing tunics were staring at me uh, as this was happening. So almost, a, for lack of a better term, what at least on the surface, looks like an induced virtual reality situation of some sort that I clawed my way out of to see what was really going on. Of course, was I really lying on a table? Were there really aliens standing over me in tunics? Well, that's discussion for another episode. 
point is, <laughs> um, I have some experience in these things. And I think I'm pretty damn cautious about this stuff. And also, uh, I've got the Kundalini Awakening, so I know what different levels of uh, existence within one are. Uh, as silly as that is to say out loud. <laughs> but that's all dealing with other people and subverting a persona to bend it to your will. What if it's an inanimate object or an animate object, such as lottery balls bouncing around a lottery ball container? Can you influence that? Well, this is a discussion I had with Barbara Three Crow, uh, because what we have said on the show, or what we've guessed at, I should say, on the show, is that all of magic and prayer and all that sort of stuff is purely about the person uh, focusing their intent and sort of jettisoning that into the universe, into the ether to attract back to them what they want. Um, but Barbara says that in the uh, native traditions, no, actually everything is alive and has its own personality. Uh, so that, well, we were talking about ritual. Um, is the ritual object necessary or is it just um, something that the user is using as a means of focus, but is not really important at, in and of itself. And she said, no, the, the objects are important because they add their own sense of self or sense of flavor, their own interaction with and to things. Um, there's an interaction there between the person and the object. So maybe this is where animism comes in or something along those lines. But so if that's true, then, uh, yeah, that, that's a further level of something that you could overpower, <laughs> um, become the puppet master of the thing on the string, the personality of a rock. I don't know. Could you levitate things? Like, what are the limitations of that? And then, if any of it's true, why aren't we all doing it? Why, why doesn't it happen? Why are there poor people? <laughs> I, I don't know. But I digress. I'm going to digress a lot because what's a solo show without digression? Suffice to say, all of this got me to thinking about artists and why it is, if it's true that artists are uh, more likely to be experiencers, why would that be? And I, and I think specifically about Jeff, who was supposed to be in on this conversation with me, but I didn't get it done in time. Um, I wanted to do a first part and then send it to him and then riff, but... I just didn't have the will to do it, so here I am at the last minute, slapping it together. So, sorry Jeff, sorry everybody. But, in absence of Jeff, why don't I talk about him? Jeff is an artist, and so, what does that mean? It means, he brings out what's in his head to life. In the external world. Which requires two things. I think being an artist requires two things. And correct me if I'm wrong here, listeners, but both focus and openness at the same time. So you've got to be open to the flow of creativity, but you've got to be focused enough to have that flow make sense, right? You're giving structure to non-structure. Non-structure being imagination, structure being what comes out on the canvas. But Jeff is also... Uh, a very intense person, beyond being an artist. He's the kind of person who, you, you probably noticed with the show, 
who, when he starts talking about something, you can try to interrupt him, you can try to take him off track, and he'll he'll go with it for all of five seconds, and then he's right back on track. You are not going to get away with changing the subject until he's completely finished talking about whatever it is. And he talks about whatever he's talking about with great intensity. So he really gets your attention, and... There's no way out of that <laughs> attention unless you walk away or something, you know? Like, you're not you're not going to break his concentration, his focus. He's going to say what he's going to say. I wonder if that's not a quality of influential people, you know, people who influence others. I just wonder. And it's not that he uses it that way. It's not that he's purposely trying to do that. But I think that um, maybe it's almost a genetic gift of a great orator or something. Hmm, what other German artist who was into occult stuff became a great influential orator? <laughs> Let me think. <laughs> Just kidding, dude. Um, so my point in all of this is, if you speak to somebody with that intensity, who is an artist who brings forth into the room that which is inside, is it possible for that person to somehow subvert your conscious? mind and I mean is that the nature of a mass hallucination is that the nature of cult leaders is that the nature of a Hitler and then on the you know that's of course the large grandiose scale on on our scale is that the nature of just being friends with or related to someone with that uh, innate ability could someone like Jeff unconsciously influence people around him to see what he sees just by the nature of him. Of course, I've ruled that out in Jeff's case because just in thinking about the types of experiences he's had with uh, relatives and friends um, sort of precludes this from applying to him. But we did talk about it, and this raises another question, which is what if Jeff or someone like him turns that focus and that intensity inwardly uh, would something like sigil magic work better for him than other people because he can forcefully jettison his intention out of finger puppet state into finger into hand? I wonder. Now, don't read anything more into this than, than just the hypothetical that I'm saying because I'm really not saying anything else. And, of course, a crazy cult leader or a Hitler require uh, yet another key ingredient, which is that they're psycho or sociopaths, which clearly Jeff is not. Um, so don't think I'm saying that. I'm just trying to figure out what the minutia is here of, um, why it is that something like this would happen to him or to me or to any of us. You always get that question, right? Why, why you? Well, maybe in Jeff's case, it's because he is a perfect storm of intensity, focus, and artistic openness. I mean, maybe that's just the answer. It's not like he's psychic or he's been chosen. It's that he's got all of these qualities in proper proportion and he's not a fucking psycho. So he, he ain't going to use him for evil. There's another movie that I saw that has sort of uh, led me down this path of inquiry. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But first, let's get into the crazy shit that happened to me. <laughs> so I'm in the theater. I'm thinking about all this stuff and other things that I've forgotten by now. <laughs> And I'm making these sort of deep connections about 
what it means that the subconscious characters would hate me in my own head. And the fact that I don't belong there. I belong in the wake world. The dream world belongs to the unconscious. And the unconscious is the puppet master that is keeping me from myself because it's holding back all of the things that I don't want to know, all of the things that are shameful and guilty and all of that. Plus it stores the memories, plus it stores whatever else, whatever hypothetical shit you want to throw in there. Past lives, uh, outside influence. I don't know, you know, whatever, however that stuff shakes out. Plus the collective unconscious stuff, math, symbols, whatever, that um, that I can't consciously get, that are sort of the zip file of experiences compressed into these symbols that only make sense on this other level. So yeah, what would I be doing there? Why would I wake up into that? Why would they greet me with open arms and be like, yes, let's now be whole, because the last thing I want to be is whole. The last thing any of us want to be is whole. That's why the unconscious exists in the first place, to protect me from myself, to protect me from the things that I fear and the things that feel awful as dictated by society, morals and ethics, whatever, whatever. But it also preserves me as my sense of self. It promotes and preserves the self. And now the self is dying back and saying, uh, I'm awake. What What is all of this? It'd be like if... The president walked in on the secret society and said, I I want to rule things too. I'm the president. And they're like, no, you don't get it. You're the puppet president. You don't get to know how the world really works. It's like a conspiracy theory inside your own head. And we've discussed this, of course. The biggest lie we tell ourselves is that we do want to be whole. That saying you do want to be whole is part of the trick of not being whole because it puts it off for the future. You see, it sets it up as this ideal. I want to some point be whole. Just not now. I mean, all of that is implied by saying, I want to be whole. The implication is that you're not. And the striving to be is actually the thing that keeps you from being, because being is just being. Doing is not being. So when you strive, you're doing. Therefore, you're keeping yourself from being, which is a nice tongue twister for you. Um, so, okay, I'm getting all of this, I'm watching the film. By the time the film's over, uh, of course, I get up, I walk outside, and everything is in high definition. Everything is more real than real, as Jeff would say. And I'm noticing this, I mean, uh, all the colors of the buildings uh, are bright, um, you know, the, the signs, stop signs, and, and things like that the grass growing in the cracks in the sidewalk. Uh, the people have a glow about them. Their clothing is bright. And I feel taller. I'm walking by people and I feel like a giant for some reason. I feel stretched. And I'm also looking around as if I'm seeing the world for the first time. I'm having that connection experience of oneness with the things around me. Uh, and as I walk back to my apartment, I mean, I am just, I'm looking all around me like, again, like I've never seen any of this stuff before, this very walk that I make pretty much every day. 
is as if I've never walked it ever. It's all new. I've got this sort of feeling of joy in my belly and uh and then I realize that whatever this kundalini thing is that comes alive is alive in me now and that one of these I guess for lack of a better term archetypal personas is experiencing this as me. This is hard to say. I mean, it's not I don't know if it's an overlay or it, I guess maybe if you were to think of uh Let's go back to water. If you have water, and I'm water, and you add food coloring, well, there's no taking the food coloring out. They're both the same thing now, even though they're separate components of the same thing. That, that's what this is. I'm still there. I'm still completely aware, but I'm colored over with this. I don't even want to say, I don't want to say entity. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what it is, this newness, this aliveness. And so I'm walking down the street with this. And I know what it is, even if I can't say it out loud. Uh, like, even if I don't know what the right word is to to apply to it, I know what it is from uh, the quote-unquote meditation experiences. Um, and it starts moving my hands around as I'm walking down the street. And I'm letting this happen, you know. There's nobody around me, so I don't feel like a crazy man completely. But it, when it walks, and I've experienced this before, when I've let it go on purpose while I'm walking around... Uh, it, it positions your body in specific ways as you're walking, and I don't know what that's about, but it does this. And so it's alive, and I'm alive, and I feel more alive than I've felt in a long, long time. And I feel completely connected to people, and I feel like like people walk by, and I, and I want to like put my hand on their forehead and say, everything's going to be okay, you're all right, you know, this sort of thing. I mean, just weird sort of emotions for strangers that are also me. You know, it's it's that sort of thing. Perhaps you've felt that before. And I get back to my apartment. I'm thirsty. I open up the fridge, and this thing backs me up away from the fridge, sort of closes the door, and says, no, you're not going to do that. Uh, brings me into the living room, sits down in the chair, and that's it. And then I sit there for a little while, and I get up of my own volition, and I go to the computer and start typing or whatever. I shake the thing off, basically. Um, because eventually you got to get your life back, right? Or you get bored or whatever it is. It's like, well, this isn't going anywhere now. I'm just sitting in a chair. Uh, so that happens. And, and as it was happening, I was thinking why this had happened. I was thinking, well, gee, was it because I was sitting in a dark theater for a few hours? Well, no, because I'd been in movie theaters, um, I mean, I went to the movies with my sister, not maybe two weeks prior. So it hadn't been that long since I'd been in a movie theater, and nothing like that happened then. Was it the movie itself? Well, I wasn't really engaged in the movie itself. Oh, I know. It's because I came to some deeper understandings of the way the unconscious mind is working and what these connections are with, you know, magic and hypnosis. And I think when you come to a deep understanding like that, it unlocks something. Because when you come to a deep understanding, that set of questions uh, that you previously had need not apply anymore. So you go on to something new. Or, maybe, uh, you're now open. You're now completely open. And so I 
in unblocking that stuff simply by pondering it and letting the answers come out naturally, uh, there's that much more flow. There's that much more hand-to-finger action than there is the finger puppet. And so, for the first time, this thing snuck up on me, becoming me, and I don't mean to imply uh, any of the shenanigans that that implies. I think it's just what happens. But it was just, for me, it was the first time that it wasn't, that it took me a minute to go, oh, wait a minute, this isn't just me. I'm not alone here uh, as myself as I know me. Whatever this other thing is, whether it's a fractured piece of me or, like I said, an archetype or something else entirely, I don't know, but uh, this other thing is here, and together we're experiencing our environment, my environment, for the first time and feel complete interconnection to all things. Weird. I don't know what to make of that. But there it is. Now, I saw another movie uh, called The Hour of the Wolf, which is an Igmar Bergman film uh, from the late 60s, I think 1968. And... I got it because I, I saw it sitting on a shelf, and I remembered uh, Christopher, Chris Leesk, uh, who was a guest on the show, talking about how 3 a.m. to 4 a.m. is the hour of the wolf, and that's the hour that the sun is furthest away from our brains, and so has the least influence. Uh, so I wanted to get the movie and see what it had to say, and this is what brings me to um, thinking about Jeff in terms of Um, the artist who brings out into the room, like we were talking about before. So in the movie, there are these, well, vampires or demons, whatever you want to call them, that are plaguing this man. And he, you know, is he crazy or are they really there? That's, That's what the film is asking. And it's called The Hour of the Wolf because he doesn't sleep until dawn. He's afraid to sleep between 3 and 4 a.m. because... According to the movie, which, and and there's a little um, documentary that goes along with it that talks about the hour of of the wolf. Uh, So the film states and the documentary states that the hour of the wolf is the point where most babies are born and where most people die. Isn't that interesting? And it's also the time when most people have nightmares and when most people just wake up for no reason or wake up and have a feeling of fear. And of course, as we know, it was also, uh, the witching hour was, we used to all think midnight, but then somebody said, no, it's actually 3 a.m. is the real witching hour. And then I saw on Wikipedia that, well, now it's like midnight is the witching hour and 3 a.m. is the devil's hour or something. So there's all of this fear and demonic shit around 3 to 4 a.m., right? And we know that it's the time when DMT is most produced by the pineal gland. So all of this is true. Now, in the movie, the man has a wife, and the wife also sees these demons. And so she wonders, uh, does that mean that they're real? Or does that mean that I'm being influenced by him? Because when you marry someone, you, you form that close bond, and you sort of start to take on their characteristics. So is she starting to think like him? Is she going mad like him? And so, of course, I immediately thought of Jeff because he has family who sees things, you know, around the house or his mom who saw the man in the black 
cloak on the side of the road one day, you know, driving along. Me, I live alone, so uh, I didn't immediately think of myself. But then in thinking about it, you know, his wife seeing things around the house like he does and all that, you know, maybe you could pigeonhole that in there. But there's certainly the giant experience of being uh, out and about in their car and having an abduction-type scenario um, that she remembers and he remembers. So, no. I mean, I think the the answer is no. In the case of Jeff, uh, there's a there there. Um, There's not he's influencing her and she's going crazy and he's crazy or any of that stuff. But it's just things to to think about because who knows if this is going on with other people, you know, are, are these explanations for things, even if they're not explanations for us <laughs> in the same way that we want to do away with the wrong tools for dealing with this stuff like hypnosis. We also of course want to flesh out any potential explanations for this stuff, right? So I looked into whether or not it's true that most babies are born in the middle of the night um, because it's not uniformly the middle of the night everywhere on Earth. That would imply that there really is something magical about this hour. Uh, So it's true, it turns out, but the medical explanation is that uh, women are most relaxed and the hormone uh, oxytocin, if I'm saying that correctly, is at its peak, and um, that is a hormone that aids in birth. And I guess for death, you could assume the same thing, right? That's when people are most relaxed. That's when people are letting go. Literally, I guess, at old age, and figuratively at a younger age. And then I got to thinking about the symbol of the snake eating its tail as the symbol of renewal. And perhaps 3 to 4 a.m. is the point at which the mouth bites down on the tail, maybe. Because isn't it interesting? It's not a complete circle, a, a snake eating its tail. There's a point of action where it it becomes the circle. Maybe that hour is that window. The circle of life. And so, thinking about this, if we want to take this out of the magical realm here... Maybe what happened is, through thousands and thousands of years of evolution, the human animal sees that it lives and dies at this hour the most. And this is the hour when the animal dreams, and when DMT is produced, and when sometimes it wakes up scared, or or bringing something into the room as a hallucination. Maybe all of that. I mean, I don't know if you can say that the brain chemistry was the same thousands and thousands of years ago? Probably not. (laughs) So if we just stick with this is when life and death happened, uh, maybe we built up a fear because the ultimate fear is the fear of life itself and therefore death itself, which is included in life. And this is the hour when both of those things take place the most. So maybe we've got this genetic fear of 3 to 4 a.m. Maybe there is nothing mystical about it. It's all encoded in us through the millennia of observation. Is this why we worshipped the sun and feared the dark, and still do? I think a case can be made. So, let's now put something else together here, which is the notion of bringing things out into the room. If you have a lucid dream and you wake up into the dream, 
You're bringing your self-awareness into the unconscious. And if you hallucinate, you bring the unconscious into self-awareness, into the external world. When I had that mouse climb out of my neck and run atop my head and jump, and then I saw it, um, that was because I was intensely focusing on the damn mouse that I saw in my house. There's a mouse in my house. I suspect Jeff has that intensity all the time. What I'm saying is, I think Jeff can bring the unconscious into the room. And as I know from experience, the unconscious can be personal unconscious, collective non-personal unconscious, or someone else entirely. Be it this kundalini experience, be it the man in my dream healing healing my back, uh, be it several things, be it the be it the time I was downloaded with what appeared to be photocopies of documents, uh, be it the way you communicate with these beings we called aliens. I mean, all of this is to say that at least some people cannot just bring forth illusions and hallucinations, like say a schizophrenic into the room or something that they were intensely dreaming about and there's still some DMT floating around and you open your eyes and there it is. I mean, I've had that happen with with a dream. Uh, I, I think I talked about it on the show maybe where I was being chased by like a leopard or something and then I opened my eyes and I just saw the, the hind legs moving through the wall, right? So that didn't really happen, but there it was in front of me. If I were that intense a person as Jeff is, and I were in contact with other beings that relate to us through the unconscious, could I not bring them into the room? Would there not be a residual effect of a haunting, say? I mean, is that why he's not certain that all this haunting business is happening and following him around? It's because he's always on. He's always that intense. And his focus is pulling this stuff through. And I think this is, you know, he's... I think he has said all of this, right? I don't think anything I'm saying here is out of line or uh, a big mystery. <laughs> I'm just, uh, I think, explaining potentially the minutia of that, the process of it, you know, why that is. And so maybe here's a good place to insert drugs. Because when I took the shrooms, I again merged consciousness with something else. I became the guest or the plaything of this mushroom carny barker who wanted to show show me this and show me that and open door number one and open door number two and shut your eyes and you'll have a whole new experience and now there's something coming through your ceiling, you know, all this sort of stuff that it was showing me and it seemed to have its own persona. But it was bringing out of me things to see, things to experience, uh, even though I could knock on the wall. So the wall was still real Reality, the external world, still existed, even if it had an overlay of hallucinations within hallucinations. I mean, for instance, you know, when I got up and walked around, uh, everything felt like a rubber plant, and everything had, like, red thorns, dull thorns. They weren't, they didn't look sharp. I didn't touch them, so I don't know. But my doorway was completely slanted. Uh, I mean, it looked like a, like a clown house inside of a cactus or inside of a rubber plant or something. That's what my place looked like. Had this weird organic feel. I felt different. I felt like some sort of dead clown, like a really grotesque, 
version of myself, almost animal, almost not quite alive, definitely a clown. I mean, all of this stuff happening at once, and then that's just the setting that I was in. And then within that setting, of course, lying on the bed, at some point my ceiling opens up in this grasshopper spaceship descends into the room and it makes noise and has gears going and smoke coming out of it. And I mean, it just looks like an organic spaceship of some sort run by grasshoppers and, you know, I mean, just weirdness, just complete weirdness and breaks in consciousness and all of that. Uh, Was it real or was it, well, I bet it was real to the mushroom. I bet whatever this mushroom person is, persona, feels that it's real and wants to show me this stuff proudly. And maybe when I wake up out of this, I can apply some of it to the external world. If I'm an artist, I can draw it. If there's a schematic about it, maybe I can invent it. But on its own terms, it's not physical here, even if it appears to be, even if I feel it, like the mouse running across my head. I felt the pitter-patter of its little claw feet, you know? Uh, But it still wasn't real. It was something I created through an obsessive focus driven by fear. And isn't that what all of these abduction experiences are? So let's put this together. What does it mean to live in another dimension? One that we can't recognize consciously. Does that mean it would be, oh, I don't know, unconscious to us? If you have the personal unconscious, the collective impersonal unconscious, and other beings, what is the that other beings part about? Is it that they're just floating around like ghosts of the imagination waiting to be perceived? Or are we in the same situation to them as they are to us? at least until such time as one of us develops a technology or a hones a means of perception that does not involve the five senses, except that it is filtered through them. In other words, do these beings that we call alien have a world that they exist in? Does this mushroom chemical open up a world that the mushroom guy lives in? (laughs) And so... The easiest means to get from there to here, if they know how, is through the unconscious. So that they not just speak to us by subverting the conscious self and speaking to the unconscious self. They actually arrive here through the vast tapestry of the unconscious self. They are pulled into the room by focus and fear. Because fear focuses us like nothing else, really. And that may be uh, because we're a damaged goods species, or it may just be the way things are. I don't know. And the more intense of a person you are, and the more focused you are, and the more at the very same time open to flow as an artist is, you're going to have more of that experience. Because they're not just willing themselves into the world. You're pulling them in yourself. Your will and their will are coming together. And so the reason that it has to be this way, spoiler alert, is because we are a damaged good species. But we're a damaged good species probably in the way that is universal to all. Perhaps all species go through this, where you wake up uh, out of the animal or 
vegetative or whatever state into self-awareness and in that moment um, there is fear and in that fear is the divide between the conscious and the unconscious. So here comes your big reveal. Perhaps, just perhaps, when we were of the animal state, we existed in this larger context. I don't want to say in their world, but I'm saying when we were of an undivided consciousness, but not self-aware, perhaps we existed in this larger world. And when we became self-aware and split off naturally into the conscious and unconscious, that larger world we became blind to. And they're not blind to us. And they've figured out a way to talk to us, bubbling up through the depths into this structure that we've created for ourselves. And some of us reach back at the same time, and it's not really to pull them through, right? Are we seeing this now? It's not to pull them through into this reality, even though that's what I just said. And even though that's what we fear we're doing, really what we're doing, or what we should be doing, is dying back into the giant tapestry that is also us. And the pulling them through into our world is the same as trying to collapse the higher into the smaller because we feel safe here. We feel safe here because we've built walls, right? We built this structure to block out our fear of life and death. And we've transferred that fear onto this thing we're calling the unknown, or alien. But it is neither unknown nor alien. It's the larger environment in which we are embedded and a part of. No more alien or unknown than the ecosystem, except we're like animals who've built our own cages and prefer that to the jungle. Or should I say we built our cages because we fear life and death. We woke up. We feared life and death, we built cages, and now anything f outside the cage we interpret as a life and death situation, right? Good, evil, out to get me, ally. And it's really just the environment, just the environment in which we've forgotten that we're embedded. We have amnesia to who and what we are. And that veil, that amnesia, lifts or falls or is pulled to the side, <laughs> uh, when we stop dividing the conscious and the unconscious. And because all of life is a metaphor within a metaphor within a metaphor to try to wake ourselves up and remember this, that's what we do. Uh, you can just think of the difference between Native Americans and Western society. We build houses, we build fences... Right? We do these things, and then we get upset when bugs get into our house, or animals get into our yard, or people break in. Um, but if you're a culture that doesn't do that, you have no fear of your environment in that way. You are a part of it. It's the same thing here, except on a, you know, another scale, a transcendent larger scale. But I wonder, did we originally build houses and build pavement and build walls to block out the environment as a way to say to ourselves, this is what you're doing internally? Wake up from this? I mean, do we keep making the same mistake over and over and over again in different physical ways to remind ourselves of the larger mistake 
in which we've embedded ourselves and live from? Is it any different than someone who watched their parents abuse each other, uh, getting into the same bad relationship over and over and over again? In other words, do we only have one script from which all acts are written until we're ready to deal with the root script and move on? And the deeper aspects of us are begging us to do that, rooting for us, really. And that takes the form of repetitive action until you finally learn the lesson. Metaphor within metaphor within metaphor. And here I am giving metaphor after metaphor. See how that works. You know, digitally, everything is a one and a zero. It's the same script for everything, right? Just different combinations. It's all one and zero underneath the hoopla of the audiovisual stimulation. In the end, it's all wake up. It's all join the conscious and the unconscious together. Forgo the finger puppet for the finger, which is the hand. And in that moment, which another word for that moment is non-locality, I would think, the finger puppet immediately comes alive again. As I experienced with my giant I am God experience, I jettisoned out the so-called slit in the spine. My sense of perception became nothingness, and then the moment it became everythingness, part of that everything was me back in my head, afraid. What if I wasn't afraid? What if I'd gone on with it? And so on and so forth. So after the moment of nothing is, everything is back to you. In the moment of non-locality, all localities exist, including, once again, you. So even though the veil falls, you're still going to exist. So maybe it's time to just breathe. Like the scene in the abyss where uh, the people put on the helmet that's full of that liquid, right? That liquid oxygen, and, and no one wants to breathe because you associate that with death. Breathing in liquid oxygen is breathing in water is killing yourself, except you don't. You breathe. The moment of death is an illusion. The moment of death in that helmet is actually the moment of life. Because now you're in your pressurized suit and you can breathe underwater and you can go out into the giant expanse of the ocean as yourself still. You didn't die. You just appeared to. But now you've got these glorious depths to swim in that weren't accessible to you before because you got yourself off from them because you got scared. That's what we're talking about. I think Jeff's journey is really interesting. He's gone from wondering if this stuff in his life is demonic into wondering if it's alien into wondering if it's a trickster. But throughout all of that, the one thing that's always been there for him is that these beings guard some secret of death. They're there to prevent you from knowing. Is that any different then waking up into the dream and meeting the cruel subconscious trying to kill me, <laughs> trying to prevent me at all costs from knowing, knowing myself. It's us talking to ourselves over and over and over again. The script is the same, you see? Whether these are independent beings or not, they're traveling in the unconscious, they're bubbling up through us, they're playing by our scripts. They have to. That's the modus operandi. Working reverse, meaning if they're coming at us from an internal reality as opposed to an external, and again, 
It's only internal because we've divided it that way. Perhaps there is no internal-external. Perhaps there is no life-death. Perhaps they're not so much guarding these secrets as they are coming from them. And these secrets are the secrets that we keep from ourselves. So it is all wake up, right? It is all that. But not in a space brotherly love sort of way. Because this is reality after all. And in reality, the little self doesn't get to know the broader. It has to die first. It has to die because it set the game up that way. Isn't that ironic? In its fear of life and death... In order to know thyself, one has to die to thyself inwardly. One has to die, meaning kill the little self, the self-conscious self, the persona that greets the world and creates the cage. That just has to go away long enough to be immersed in the giant environment around it, through it, as it. That's all we're talking about. That's all we're telling ourselves. So really, at the end of the day, what needs to happen is that the divide between the conscious and the unconscious falls for all of reality to present itself, to be present in the moment. And it must be that way because all of it is you, right? In other words, when I wake up into my dream and I ask my subconscious to tell me the truth and it tells me to go fuck myself... Uh, and then tries to kill me, or turns demonic on me, that's because there is no me to turn around and ask myself for the truth. There is no me asking me. Is this making sense? There is no me. Who am I asking? Me? <laughs> who, who am I? Who am I? And then who am I asking? Me? I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. The me asking is a figment of the imagination of a species who woke up and fearfully divided the world into internal and external sub-realities. It is a tiny little speck of thought that believes it is the entire thinker, and it is reflecting back upon itself in this dream form and saying, Tell me the truth about me! Me? Except it's so fucking delusional that it doesn't even... Or should I say, I'm so delusional that I'm not even certain the me I'm asking inside my own head is me. I think maybe it's demons, maybe it's aliens, maybe it's a guardian of life and death, the soul, whatever. No, it's me. I'm asking me for some answers. In denial that I blocked out this entire thing, in denial that I'm like a finger that is that has cut off itself from the rest of the body. Looking at the body and going, I want some answers here. Well, the answer is you're a finger. Actually, I'm a finger puppet, <laughs> if I want to stick with my original metaphor. It's all me. You get it? There is no you looking back at yourself. That divide is the second-person perspective. Once again, we get back to perspectives. It's me dividing myself and speaking to myself as if I'm another person. Ain't that crazy? When really, the truth beyond that 
is I am, is all of it is one. And so what happens when the individual singular organism, the human being, you, I, wake up? What happens when you wake up? Put it that way. You wake up to this oneness. What happens? You become a Jesus, a Buddha, a guru type, right? Uh, Because you're still living amongst people who have first, second, and third person perspectives. What happens when all of those people wake up to the first person? What happens when all is in the moment of I am, in the moment of oneness, undivided, a species undivided? The organisms themselves are still divided, but the mind is not. There is no collective unconscious, there is no personal unconscious, and there is no little tiny me. There's just consciousness, all of it at once. Boom! Through those organisms. Well, I think that's what these beings are, right? A species undivided, their environment isn't divided, their sense of self isn't divided. Now, the beauty of this discussion is that most of you still think that you have a choice But if there is no you, there is no choice. This is what we are. The denial is is a false choice. It's one that we've been at for thousands and thousands of years now. Uh, But that's the blink of an eye, really. Truth is, you wake up or you die. Species unfulfilled. Right? I mean, that just makes sense. In our fear of death, we're going to kill ourselves. Isn't that funny? But I think that's the precipice we stand upon. If we bring death into life's fold by achieving this oneness state, then does death become irrelevant anyway? I mean, there must be something about form, about our form, that's important. Or else, who cares if we wake up out of delusion or not? Well, I don't know. Kind of don't want to risk it. I'd rather add my food coloring to the greater waters rather than pissing in the pool. But then that's just me. And I'm still here. Daydreaming. Inside of a movie theater. While a movie plays. About dreams within dreams within dreams. Invented by a man with an imagination who applied it to dreaming. The script plays on.